This is the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges, and in this episode, I'm joined by Adam Miller, a Latter-day Saint philosopher who recently published an unusual book here at the Maxwell Institute. The book is called Letters to a Young Mormon, and I think it's unlike anything ever written for a young Latter-day Saint audience. Miller spends his days teaching philosophy to college students in Texas, but the most important lessons he says he's prepared have been directed to his own children. So he composed this book as a series of letters meant for them and for any young Mormon who's familiar with Mormon life but green in their faith. Letters to a Young Mormon encourages Mormons young and old to live in a way that refuses to abandon either Mormonism or life. Most importantly, even while dispensing wisdom, Miller wanders alongside the reader. Adam Miller's new book, Letters to a Young Mormon, is the topic in this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. Turn back my Magellan, please record this final sound. I'm here with Adam Miller. He joins me from Dallas, Texas, and we're here to talk about his new book, Letters to a Young Mormon, that was just published with the Maxwell Institute. Thanks for joining me, Adam. My pleasure. I wanted to start the interview by talking a little bit about your personal background, sort of your little life story, uh, because it's not your typical uh, born in the church, raised in Utah type of a story. So um, I'd like to hear about your family background. I'm the third of four children. Uh, All of my family, both on my father and my mother's side, are from Pennsylvania. I grew up in Pennsylvania. My... Father's grandmother joined the church. Uh, she was interested in the church and tried to find missionaries to teach her the gospel. But the best she could do in Pennsylvania was the reorganized church of mm. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so she initially accidentally joined the reorganized church because she wasn't aware of the difference. Huh. And then later on, she cor- she corrected that. Uh, and joined the Church of Jesus Christ. Do you know how she found out? How did she find out the difference? Uh, I I don't know the story about exactly how that came to light, but... Wow. uh, My father uh, grew up then in a part member family. His mother was active, but his father was not a member. And my mother joined the church after she married my father while he was away in the Navy. Yeah, you said that didn't missionaries stop by? Like he was he was away, and then missionaries came by, and she was like, "Hey, I think my husband belongs to that church." Yeah, I talk about that a little bit in the book. Yeah. So I was born into the church, though, and raised in the church. In the context of Pennsylvania, that meant initially a very small ward, and then when I was a teenager, we moved, uh, and then it was a very small branch. We met in a house for most of my teenage years, and I was the young men's program, personally. <laughs> so there was never any doubt who was going to be the president of the <laughs> deacon's quorum or the <laughs> teacher's quorum. Did you have a first counselor, quorum. or were you like the whole no, presidency? No, I, I was it. Wow. I, was the, I was the program. So as far as, uh, did you do early morning seminary? or My mother did an early morning seminary with me one year. She and I would meet around the breakfast table, uh, and she got tired of that. <laughs> And then I did uh, home study for the other three years. Okay. And you eventually, you served a mission? Mm-hmm. I served a mission in Albuquerque. Albuquerque, in, New Mexico. English speaking. And then you and came home and decided to go to school. I did. So talk about your academic background a little bit. I went to Brigham Young University for my undergraduate degree, which was in comparative literature. Uh, and I met my wife at BYU in a history of Civ section of uh, comparative literature. And she got a better grade in that class than I did, <laughs> despite the fact that she was a biology major and I was the <laughs> putative <laughs> comparative literature major. Nice. And uh, we have three children now together. How old are the oldest is 12? The oldest just right? turned 13. 13. Uh, a teenager in the house, which was, wow. as we'll talk about later, I think, yeah. part of what precipitated my writing this book. Yeah, let's do, let's do that right now. So the, the genesis of this book then sort of grew out of your own relationship with your daughter? or Yeah, uh, over the last year or two, I've started to think pretty seriously about the kinds of things that I would like to be able to tell her 
now in as clear and compelling a way as I could about what it means to be a Mormon and what kind of problems she may face just as a human being and or as someone trying to uh, live the gospel. And that more than anything propelled me to put pen to paper and do some writing here. So I think a lot of parents try to focus on, you know, testifying to their children. Church leaders um, strongly recommend that, that that parents bear their testimonies. Um, so a lot of that, I think, probably happens verbally or like in family home evening settings. But you've written a book about it. Um, do you also have a lot of conversations as well? Did any of the letters grow out of those conversations or was it a pretty separate thing? Uh, we do we do have conversations in family home evening. The thing in particular that my daughter and I do, and I do this with our, our two younger boys as well, is that I, I read to them at night. Mm-hmm. And my daughter and I still read together uh, most nights, though we read a lot different things than we did when she was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- that gives us a kind of occasion to say words out loud to each other and talk about things that we wouldn't <laughs> normally talk about and just be in the same room uh, thinking about things. Was it easier in the – did you address things in the book that you hadn't maybe felt as comfortable talking about in person or was it easier to organize your thoughts that way? Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I don't – we haven't ever had a discussion about uh, sex the way that uh, – in line with the kind of letter that I wrote uh, yeah. in the book, right? That kind of thing is a lot yeah. harder to – have a conversation about face to face. Yeah, so so that that letter about sex is is one of many letters that are in this book that each kind of have a main theme but but address a lot of different topics. Where did this letters to a uh, concept come from? Well, I think the there's a whole genre of books letters to a young uh blank. Uh, the prototype for that genre was uh Rilke's book Letters to a Young Poet. But for me, the impetus especially came from a book written by James Smith called Letters to a Young Calvinist Hmm. that gave me the idea of writing one for Mormons and for my kids in particular. Okay. Um, Now, how would you situate your book um, alongside other um, books that are written for LDS youth specifically? We have – you know, there's a pretty healthy market um, for books written to youth. So how do you think yours kind of compares? Well, I can't say I've read – very many of those. Like, did you ever read John By the Way's stuff? I've I've read a few of his when I was younger. Uh, no, not really. Maybe a little bit here or there. I did once share John By the Way's office while I was oh. teaching part time at BYU, <laughs> but he wow. wasn't around when oh, I okay. was in his office, so it was a little disappointing. Yeah, yeah, he's a funny guy. Is that that's kind of his his approach then is to sort of reach reach you through through humor and stuff and i think letters to a young mormon sort of takes a different approach yeah i'm i'm certainly in favor of the kind of thing that john by the way does and there's a place for it though that's not really my style uh we never really got back around to my the rest of my education but my bachelor's degree was in comparative literature and my master's and phd were in philosophy and I work now as a professor of philosophy for about 10 years now. I've been teaching here at Collin College in Dallas. And so, you know, you bring a philosopher slash father to bear on these kinds of questions. I think you get a different kind of, you get a different kind of product than you would from other mixes. I'm a professional philosopher slash writer slash essayist. And so came naturally. I think one of the most interesting things about the book is in the very first letter you start off, the very first line in the first letter is, I don't know. Yeah, that was a very self-conscious decision to start with exactly that sentence, I don't know. Because for me as a professional philosopher and as a person who spends a lot of time thinking about religion and religious ideas and scripture – that for me is that not knowing is for me at the very heart of my religious experience. I think the temptation when we run up against our own ignorance is to think that we've run up against the limit of our own religious experience. But for me, being confronted with 
the vastness of what it, of what it is that I don't know that has itself been in some ways the beating heart of my religious experience and so I wanted to put it right there front and center you know, to reassure my children and people in general that not knowing is part of what it means to be a human being and it's part and parcel of being a religious person and it's not something that we have to be afraid of I think a lot of members of the church want to deal in in certainties in a lot of ways. Um, we often bear testimonies in ways that talk about the things that we know, that we know things, we know this, and, and we know that. Um, this book sort of starts off, you know, saying, I, I don't know. And, and you say you sort of built your own religious life around a willingness to swim in uncertainty. How do you see that sort of thing fitting within Mormonism? Do you think that was informed by your by your membership in the church? Or do you think that's more more just your temperament that then you sort of work through that while you're also a member of the church? Well, I didn't set out to build my religious life around not knowing. <laughs> but, I mean, you, in, but you kind of start, in, did you start yeah. off feeling like you didn't know, though? Or did you start off feeling like you did know? Well, in a very, in a very Mormon way, I felt compelled from very early on to know, mm -hmm. to find out as much as possible. And I think... It's a common experience when you feel compelled to search and read and try to learn as much as you can that one of the very first things you discover is how much you don't know. And so I think in that sense, it, it ends up being an unavoidable part of Mormon experience itself to the degree that we're compelled to search for understanding, to try to know as much as possible. An integral, unavoidable part of that will be becoming better acquainted with all that we don't know and learning how to trust the Lord in light of it. Yeah, I, th I think that's interesting. So you're saying, like, you know, whether we even remember where we started off religiously in our lives, I think a lot of people will get to the point where even as they learn more, um, a space of ignorance will open up. You will become aware of that. And that can be a moment when we feel less inclined to look for God there. Maybe we feel abandoned by God, or uh, it could be an encouragement to try to seek to understand God even better. Yeah, I think you can you can take that moment of not knowing as an indication that your religious experience has failed, or you can take that moment of not knowing as an indication that you are making genuine spiritual progress. Well, so what's interesting, and the reason I ask that line of questions is because you follow up the I don't know um, with um, Paul in, in Philippians saying that, that we're, we're supposed to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So you set up the beginning of this book saying there are some things you don't know, but there's, a process, there's, there's something you need to work out here, uh, and it's going to involve fear and trembling. And you talk about a map, a map that we've been given. I'd like you to explore that a little bit here, your concept of the map versus the terrain. I think it's easy when we think about the difference between a map and the terrain at our feet. It's easy to identify the gospel with the map. Right, as if the gospel were, the gospel was a kind of idealized plan about how life is supposed to go and how you're supposed to act, uh, and that the gospel is that ideal map, and then the world is this kind of messy thing that ought to be reformed in light of the ideal map. I think it's tempting to do that, but I think we ought to make exactly the opposite association between the gospel and the map, and identify the gospel not with the idealized map, but identify the gospel instead with what's real, with the whole of what's real. Now, there are maps that are part of the gospel, but the gospel is not the map. The gospel is, is what's real. It's the world at our feet, and the gospel is meant to show us how to stop running away from the real important things right in front of us and instead give ourselves to it. So I, I would sort of, from what I got from reading the book, I sort of thought of the map as being like 
directions, li- rule like it would sort of be like the commandments or like the the you tie it to things like getting your personal progress award or um, you know going on a mission and then getting married in the temple and the sort of steps that we make. I actually thought of it in terms of like Google Maps where it'll give you directions, but I found sometimes when I print those directions out and then I get on the road that. <laughs> You know, I, I very well may end up lost anyway, uh, you know, w- despite having those directions. I find that actually being on the road or confronting life, I guess, is the corollary, uh, can be a bit trickier than the directions I was given. Is, is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, that's true, too. Uh, the gospel is – we need maps to help us get places, but the gospel is not the map. The gospel is the road itself. Yeah. And uh, if we fall into the trap of thinking that the map is the real thing and the world is uh, the world is in some way uh, a kind of illusion that we need to escape for the sake of the map, and then I think we've got the gospel backwards, uh, and we'll ignore all the hard work that's actually involved in learning how to take what's on the map and make it real in our lives. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what's valuable about this book overall. And- and you set it up in your very first letter is basically you say, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. Um, I, I'm instead going to talk about confronting life as a Mormon, as it's lived on the ground, feet on the ground, meeting other people, having real experiences. Um, now, the second letter is really interesting because you bring up the topic of pursuing excellence. I think I remember as a kid being pretty goal-driven. And wanting to get good grades, not that I did, but knowing that that was like a worthy goal to have. Um, and and you talk about pursuing excellence in a way I hadn't really thought about before. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I have myself always been very goal-driven, success-oriented, ambitious kind of fellow. Uh, and that hasn't always made me an especially happy fellow, even when I've been successful at the kinds of goals I've been pursuing. And I think that has to do with the way that we often <laughs> hitch our pursuit of success together to together with another goal that it doesn't really it doesn't really need to be coupled with. Right? We often this is something that's that's long been true for me. I think it's often true for people that the reason that we pursue success and excellence and ambitious goals is because we want to prove something to ourselves and other people about ourselves. And the thing that we want to prove is that we want to prove that we deserve to be loved. We want to demonstrate that because I can do X, Y, or Z and I'm better than other people that I'm more worthy of being loved. And I think that, especially in the context of the gospel, when we think about service and work and obedience, uh, when we think about being excellent in those ways as a means to earning God's love, then we've got the gospel backwards from the start. It's true that we have to work really, really hard, and we have to try to be as excellent as we can, But it's not true that we have to work really, really hard in order to get God to love us. God loves us already, and his love for us is perfect, uh, and it won't be made more perfect by my making myself uh, into what I think is something closer to what he wants me to be. He wants me to be something better, but his love for me isn't conditioned on my being something better. If If we can uncouple those things, if I can... Let God's love for me be real and present and palpable now. If I can let it be a gift rather than something that I've that I need to earn, then I think one, it frees me of the burden of trying to earn something that can't be earned because it can only come as a kind of gift. And it frees for me the work itself as something that can be enjoyed for its own sake rather than only as a means to some other kind of end. Yeah, there's a quote that, I'll I'll read a quote from the book here that expresses that. You say, you must trust in God's perfect love, and you must wear out your life in the pursuit of what is excellent. But if you try to secure God's love through your excellence, 
then no matter how excellent your work, you will fail. Work chained to its outcome is misery. Do what you can, do it better than you're able, and let things happen as they may. The action, not its fruit, is your business. So this is a really interesting way to to express this. And I wonder how you how you got to this point of seeing it this way, because I've talked to a lot of I've had a lot of conversations about the relationship between works and grace, which we can say is sort of like God's love. You know, uh, we work not to receive God's love. These, these things are sort of separate. Mormonism teaches, though, that we do need to work. So how do we? How did you get to the point where you could decouple those? Because you include them both, but they're they're not connected anymore. How did you get to that realization? Is there something that influenced that? Well, part of that line that you from the passage that you just read for us, where I say something like the uh, the work itself is what concerns you, not its fruit or its outcome. Mm-hmm. In some ways, that line is a kind of uh, direct echo of some passages from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. in which uh, Krishna counsels young Arjuna to only ever pay attention to the action and relinquish attachment to the fruit of the action. But I think that's uh, that's just another way of saying the same kind of thing that Jesus says all the time, that we ought to be good for its own sake, not for the sake of some kind of reward that we could get out of it. And to the degree that we are good for the sake of the reward, we have not actually been good at all. We've failed both to love and to make ourselves open to the reception of God's love. You also get you also kind of tell some a little bit about your own self in this chapter where you're talking about playing basketball as a as a young guy and is is you talk about how you really strove to be great at the game and that and losses would be really disappointing and hard to take. Um, now that you're older, you look back on that and and sort of see yourself as maybe taking the wrong approach. You as a youth, you would try to excel at basketball because you thought that would make you love love a loved person and stuff. Um, and, and I think that's a really valuable thing for young people uh, and and even older people to to be reminded about to 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 think about separating the work that we do from the love that we receive, and not just from God though. I think that also kind of applies to our families. Um, uh, as far as how how we deal with with our spouses or with our children, um, I think it's easier to feel that way about children because we raise them and they're so vulnerable to begin with. But especially with spouses, to learn to decouple the work that we do from the acceptance and love that we give, that's really hard to do. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Number one, it's really hard to do, and I think uh, number two, it's absolutely crucial to discovering what it means to love another human being. If I spend my time trying to get my wife to love me, then I'll have I'll ruin the relationship. This, it's not my business to get her to love me. It's my business to love her. And those are two very different kinds of things. I have to trust that if I love her, that that's enough uh, and that her loving me is up to her. It's not something that uh, I need to command or control or make myself uh, – put myself in charge of by – uh, making it impossible for her not to love me. It's my business to love her, and it's my business to work hard, uh, but it's not my business to decide for her how she feels. That's part of loving somebody else. I think, you know, when I the basketball example is nice trying to, you know, be, excel at something mm-hmm. so that other people then will admire you and love you. But I think when I was thinking about this question this morning, this book itself is a nice example, right? You write you write a nice little book, letters to a young Mormon. You think to yourself, "Oh, this is going to be a beautiful thing. It's really amazing. People are finally going <laughs> to people are finally really going to love me, <laughs> right, for having written this book." Uh, but if you go if you go about the book that way, uh, you're going to be disappointed, and you're going to ruin the possibility of the book working as a vehicle for love. I don't feel like we can always shut that kind of feeling down though. I mean, it's, it's very, 
it's very common to want to feel loved and to feel like the things that we do help generate that love. I think one of the hardest things about letters to a young Mormon is bringing myself to believe that's possible to fully do that. I, I don't think we could ever fully escape that. Do you? I, maybe that's part of what it means to be the natural man. Uh, is it something that we can't fully escape? Are those impulses to, to want to succeed in order to be loved? Like, do you really get to that point? I don't, you know. I don't think at all that it's possible to get beyond, in some sense, uh, that wanting to be loved. But I think it's entirely possible, and the promise of the gospel self itself hinges on it being possible for our relationship to that wanting to be loved to change in a fundamental way. I think it has to do with the way that what we as human beings want is love. And and that's the most natural and powerful and important thing about us as human beings, that we want love. But part of what the gospel is trying to show us is that love is the kind of thing that you can only have in the end by giving it away rather than by getting it. It's kind of classic Christmas cliche that there's really only joy here in the giving, not in the getting. And if you think love is something that you're supposed to get, then you'll have missed it from the start. Love is something that you can only have to the degree that it's passing through you to someone else on the way to someplace else. So why is that so counterintuitive then? I I think for young people reading reading the book, it'll, I, and for me as I read it, it, it rang true but very counterintuitive. Well, it's a lot like it's a lot like happiness or meaning, right? Is happiness happiness is the end of our existence, right? As mm-hmm. we read in the Book of Mormon. But if you set your goal in life to be being happy, right? If you make your goal in life to make yourself happy then you will never, ever be happy. Yeah. Happiness only ever comes to you as a byproduct of your being concerned about other people. Or if, if what you want is knowledge and meaning uh, and certainty, I think similarly, that's not something that you can get by pursuing it directly. It comes only like happiness, as meaning it comes only like happiness as a kind of byproduct of your pursuit of love and service for other people. If you want love, the only way to have it is to give it. You can't use your works or excellence or achievements to try to earn it and extort it from other people around you, or even from God. Yeah, you quote um, you quote Second Nephi thirty one, where you basically say you don't you don't have to generate merit in order to be saved. And and this segues with our we're talking about being loved. We can kind of equate those things, I think. Yeah. Um, you don't need to generate merit in order to be saved or to be loved. You need instead to come unto Christ and rely wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. I, I think that's got to be one of the most difficult demands the gospel makes. Yes, right. The gospel, as we said earlier in relationship to the first letter, the gospel demands that we work really, really hard. But it doesn't demand that I work really, really hard to earn enough merit for God to love me. The gospel demands that I work really, really hard to rely entirely on Christ's merits and on the fact that God already loves me. The hard work here is to rely on God's already given love rather than spending my life trying to secure it as something that he's not yet willing to give. That's that's what you say. Look, uh, relying wholly upon the merits of Christ is still hard work. It's work, (laughs) but it's work of a different kind. Um, Yeah, a very different kind. Yeah, okay. Um, well, and I think, let's say too, yeah. with respect to the composition of the book, the letters address different topics as they move through, but they are tightly interwoven with oh, yeah. one another. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage anyone to just pick out a letter here or there to read them individually. The book's short enough, only 70 pages or so, but just designed to be read from beginning to end. Uh, as each letter kind of builds on the one that came before to show 
a kind of different a different perspective on the same familiar things that have been important to us as Mormons all along. Right. You definitely build the groundwork early uh, and then continue to build on that foundation sort of throughout the book. It, it does crescendo. Um, there's another element that you bring up in these early letters then, which is this idea of your life story. We all sort of we're, – humans are very narrative-oriented. Uh, so we all have a life story about who we are and where we're going, and it sort of ties into the goals that we make and, and, and the – belief that we have about whether we can reach those and that sort of thing. And and you're encouraging um, people to focus on a different narrative. So talk about that part of, of this book, the, the element of these narratives. Well, one of the basic frames that I use for talking about the gospel in the book is in relationship to the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Right? I have a certain kind of story about who I am and what I'm like that I want my life to match up with and that I want other people to believe about me, right? That I'm successful in certain kind of ways or that I'm, uh, people want to admire certain kinds of things about me, right? I have this story in my head about how my life should go. In some ways, this is another version of the, uh, of the map from the first letter, mm-hmm. right? That we have these maps, uh, we have these stories that present a kind of idealized version of how the world ought to be. But then there's, there's, in addition to the story about my life, there's my actual life. Uh, and I think it's probably a universal feature of adulthood is the discovery that your life, uh, the life that God gave you, and is giving you and will continue to give you, that that life uh, is way too big and messy and complicated and beautiful to ever fit inside the teeny tiny confines of the very self-centered and idealized story we're trying to tell about ourselves. And at the heart of the gospel is our willingness to let go of our stories about ourselves and trust instead the life that God's trying to give us. Well, it's a lot like it's a lot like a marriage, right? If you're whether a marriage is going to succeed depends on whether or not as a couple you can let go of the story that you had about the person that you married, right? You married that you fall in love with another person often initially because they complement your story in just the way that you would like, right? They make you feel really good about yourself. Uh, They seem to fill just the role that you wanted someone to play in the story about how your life was going to go. And I think you and you perhaps fill, you know, you part of your story was how you would match up with somebody else. So that yeah, that's side of it as well. Yeah, and that's the that's kind of like that's the first uh, that's the first blush of romance, right? Those heady days in which you think to yourself, "Oh, my story might actually work out the way that I wanted it to." And then you get married and you discover that uh, neither neither you are who you wanted to be, nor is the other person exactly what you wanted to do, right? The other person refuses. The other person is themselves uh, too beautiful and complex and unwieldy to ever fit within the confines of your little story about them. And if you discover what love is really about, you're going to have to decide that you love the other person more than you love the story that you were trying to tell about them and that you're willing to let go uh, of that story in order to to love them instead for who they actually are. See, and and although the book's written for young Mormons, I think that point is also really important for parents to have because as a a brand new parent myself, I have so many hopes and dreams for my daughter and just thinking about what her life will be like that I also have to put the brakes on sometimes and think about, you know, there are a lot of things that could happen in her life that, that would, that would change her story in, in, you know, I can't write her story there. And, and I have to learn in order to learn to love her that way. I also have to decouple that love from the story I'm writing about her. And and that can be really tough for parents to do. Yeah, well, this is the story not only of every marriage, it's the story of every relationship between every parent and every child in which you reach the point where you discover that that child, uh, no matter how great they are, is never going to be, is never going to be what you wanted them to be. They're going to be themselves. 
Yeah. Right. They're they're never going to match up with the story that you wanted to tell about them. And you're going to reach that point where you're going to have to decide whether you love your story about them or whether you love them. You're going to have to decide which one you love more, them or your story. And lots of times we end up choosing our stories, right? Yeah. Lots of times I end up choosing my story about my wife over my actual wife. Or I end up choosing my story about my children over my children. Uh, and that's when things fall apart. That's when we lose that's when we lose uh, a deep connection with the light and life that is the is the spirit itself when we end up choosing our our narrow little fictions rather over uh, over the beautiful complex messiness of actual stuff i think that again this this could really help out for young mormons who have maybe had conflicted relationships with their own parents yeah. where like the more we grow up the more we realize our parents are human and that can that can be hard to realize as well um, when we have a certain view of our parents and then discover that they they don't always match up to that. And so we have a story about our parents that they don't always fit. So yeah. again, in order to find love there, like we have to we have to stop loving that story. We have to turn our love to the person. Yeah, your parents are your parents are never going to be who you want them to be either. Now the question I have here is you talk about how God has a story for us too, right? So how is that different then? If if God loves us, we learn that in the scriptures, but you say we also have to put ourselves into the story that God wants for us. Is is that different? Is his is God's story making different than what a parent's story making might be for their child? Well, I'd I'd rather put it like this. Uh, I'd rather say not that God has a story to not that God has a story for me. Uh, but that God has a life for me. I have stories, and maybe God has his own stories, and those stories, like maps, can be useful for certain kinds of things, but those maps and those stories, they aren't the same thing as the life that they attempt to describe. And God, in the end, doesn't want to give me a story. He wants to give me a life. Okay. And if some of his stories can help me connect with life, then I think he's all in favor of that. But if I end up choosing even what I think are his stories over the actual life that he's trying to give me, uh, then I'll have missed the point of the stories in the first place. Hmm. It's interesting the the section you bring up on the creation narrative. You talk about how in Genesis, you know, God works with the people's stories. So the people had a certain view of how the how the world and the universe worked, right? And you kind of compare it to a snow globe where there's a dome overhead. And the earth is flat there, and the sky above is the firmament and all these things. Now, scientifically, we know now that that, that view of the world's just not – it's not scientifically accurate. So some people say, well, what good's the Genesis narrative then if if it's depicting this you know, scientifically false view of how the world was created? Uh, and, and you talk about how God sort of reached down and, and used the stories that people had made about the earth in order to teach them lessons, right? I think one of the really ironic things about what we often call literal readings of Scripture is that they're not very literal at all, right? So if you take if you take a kind of what would go by the name of a contemporary creationist reading of the first chapter of Genesis, right? The the contemporary creationists would read the first chapter of Genesis, quote unquote, literally as if that description fit a kind of sci-fi-informed sci-fi version of what our contemporary understanding of the world is. That's, that's not a literal reading of Genesis chapter 1, right? A literal reading of Genesis chapter 1 is to see that the, that the sky is literally a dome hammered out of some kind of tin, yeah. right? And that the stars, the stars yeah. are embedded in that sky and spin through it and that the world is flat. That's a literal reading of Genesis chapter 1. And that there's, there's water above the firmament that can yeah. come crashing down through. Exactly. That's where the rain comes from is yeah. because there's water above the ceiling of the world. Yeah. That's a literal reading of Genesis yeah. chapter 1. Uh, such that what we normally refer to as literal readings of Genesis chapter 1, right? They're not literal at all. Yeah. They're, they're highly speculative, highly creative, fantastic versions of what's actually going on in the letter of the text. We shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that that, that kind of reading in which we connect the text of Genesis chapter 1 to uh, our contemporary scientific understanding of the world 
we shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that that's a literal reading. That's a highly symbolic uh, interpretive reading. Yeah, so this kind of approach, I think this is where your your book bumps up against um, what in Mormonism, traditional Mormon apologetics or defenses of the faith, where they sort of take um, an issue or a criticism that's troubling to people and then provide a response to it. I think this is probably where your book brushes up most closely against that uh, kind of apologetics. Did you have an apologetic idea in mind when you were writing the book, or were you trying to do something else? Well, I had a very specific strategy in mind with respect to the book in terms of of helping my kids grapple with different kinds of challenges they might experience with respect to their faith. And that strategy had a lot less to do with answering particular questions they Mm -hmm. have about particular challenging topics than it does with introducing them to a different perspective on the meaning of the challenges to their faith. Mm-hmm. Which is part of why I start the book with the with the sentence I don't know, right? Because I want to I want to reframe from the beginning of the book to the end uh, a perspective on the nature of the challenges and what they mean, and then I'll let them work out the details, right, of the particular challenges to their faith along the way. But I wanted to shift the I wanted to shift the terrain on which those questions were being asked and answered, and so in some sense, with respect to answering particular questions. Uh, in terms of challenges to our faith, historically or doctrinally, the, tr- the book doesn't do anything at all, and that's on purpose. But in another sense, the book does a lot of work in trying to reframe what those questions mean and why they're important, uh, and it does that from beginning to end. Yeah, the impression I got was the book was intended to tell young Mormons more about how to be and how to approach things rather than what exactly to think about certain things or certain facts. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so let's talk for a minute about faith, about the your discussion of faith in the book. And this ties back into some things we were talking about previously um, with relationships when you brought up a marriage. You talk about faith and you say that faith um, – some it, some people think that faith is a poor man's substitute for knowledge, that it's uh, a kind of admirably earnest wishful thinking about things that, that we can't really you know ever prove or be sure about. Um you know, Paul talks about faith being hope uh, in, in things that are not seen, which are true, right? Um, and you take the, it, the substance. The substance of, of uh, yeah. That for me may be the most important word in that verse. Yeah, so talk about it. It has that. to do with the substance of things, even if they aren't seen. And did that inform your reading of faith in this letter then? Well, that verse connects that way uh, for me, but I didn't actually have that verse, especially in mind. Well, talk <laughs> so, so yeah, so go ahead and talk about what you do then um, in, in your discussion of faith in the book. Well, I think a kind of a caricature of faith would be to say uh, that faith is believing in my story about the world even when the world refuses to match up with my story. Right, so that faith, a kind of caricature of faith would be uh, my ignoring the world in order to stick, despite everything, to the story I'm trying to tell about it. Uh, but I think what faith actually boils down to is not my dogged adherence to my version of how things are supposed to be, regardless of the facts on the ground. But faith involves my willingness to let go of my story and trust, right? trust God that the life in the world he's trying to give me uh, is better than the story I was trying to tell about it. Even if the story I was trying to tell about it was a religious sounding story. Yeah, you point out you point out there in in, in the the letter that most talks about faith that, that fidelity is key. You talk about the the idea of fidelity and and that sometimes um sometimes it takes work in order for for that charity to to sort of come out, right? So Sometimes we, we serve other people, um, even when our heart's not fully in it. Sometimes we, you know, and it, with the hopes that eventually that becomes love. Sometimes we attend a, a church meeting that we're not particularly excited about for the same reason, right? To sort of strengthen that faith and because we've agreed to do that. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, I point out, I point out in the letter on faith that faith can't travel alone and that it needs traveling companions. Uh, and that two of those traveling companions, of course, are that travel with faith are hope and charity or hope and love. And the point of faith here involves 
my willingness to set aside my version of my story of how things are supposed to be in order to actually care for the people in the world that's right in front of me. And that takes that takes a lot of faith to put down my own version of how things are supposed to be in order to care for the things that are given regardless of they match up with what I wanted. Jesus says uh, any, anybody can love things that matches up with their story, right? Any, anyone can love their friends. Anyone can uh, show affection for things that complement you. Yeah. But love actually, uh, love actually gets some traction and has some substance to it when you love your enemy, when you love the thing that was given that you didn't want and that didn't fit with your story and that may have even carried a high price for you to swallow. Faith shows up there in connection with my ability to to love, to care for what's given regardless of whether it fits what I wanted and thought how, whether or not it fits what I thought things should be like. I wanted to, to switch tracks again uh, and talk about the, the section on scripture study. And when you talk about reading scriptures, uh, you talk about it as translation. This is really interesting. You You say that Members of the church have to translate the books again. Uh, the, the quote you say is, To be a Mormon is to do once more on your own small scale the kind of work that Joseph Smith did in translation. So what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by scripture study as translation? I think Joseph Smith is a great model here of what it means to be a Mormon. To be a Mormon in relationship to scripture is to do the work of translation. Now, Joseph, the scope of Joseph's translation work is obviously of a very different kind than the kind of translation work that you and I are asked to do. Joseph was asked to do the work of translating scripture uh, for the world, right? He's asked to take ancient records and he's asked to translate them uh, into the language of his time and his place for his whole world in order to kickstart uh, the restoration of the gospel. But Joseph, even though he started that work, and gets the ball rolling, the work's not done. You and I are meant, I think, to do the same kind of work that Joseph did, but on a much smaller scale in relationship to our own lives. He gave us a kind of initial translation of the Book of Mormon, meant for the general meant for the general public. You and I now are meant to, on a daily basis, produce additional translations of that scripture that tie that ancient text into our world and our language. And we're meant to do that again and again and again for the length of our whole lives. In terms of in terms of this approach to the scriptures, did your educational background inform the way you'd approach the scriptures then? I mean, you said you were a comparative literature uh, major as, as an undergraduate. Yeah, I spent a lot of time learning foreign languages and translating things as an undergraduate, so that way of thinking about it may have come more naturally to me. But I think it's a pretty accurate description of what we're all meant to do when we sit down with the text in the morning. I'm not just meant to read what God told Joseph to translate. I'm meant by way of the Spirit to engage in the process myself of taking what was given in the text and writing it, translating it into the stuff of my own life. Um, how can young people benefit from your approach? What are some specific things they can be doing to sort of perform the kind of work you suggest, this translation? Well, we don't often talk about it in terms of translation. But I think whenever we read scripture well, and we we do that often, that is what we're doing. We're doing something like that. When I, I'm currently serving in our ward as the varsity coach, and when I sit in the teacher's <laughs> quorum with the teachers, and uh, we read a passage of scripture together, and the boys pick out some aspect of the verse uh, that means something to them and translate it into their own way of talking about the world and thinking about the world. I think that's it, right? When the Spirit guides us uh, in taking that ancient text and translating it into our own contemporary idiom again, once again, uh, that's it. So I think 
I think of the word likening, right? I think of Nephi saying, I'm going to take these scriptures, I'm going to liken them unto my people. They don't really even need to know much about, uh, you know, Israelites' background. I'm going to quote from Isaiah here and sort of apply it to what we're doing here. Yeah, well, obviously, the more they know, the better, uh, and the better their translations uh, can be. The more the material the Spirit has to work with, the better product the Spirit can use us to uh, to produce. Uh, but we all have lots of material that the Spirit can work with uh, already. The other topic I wanted to talk about, and there's there's a ton of other things in the book that, w- that we could talk about, but the other one uh, that, that we'll get to here as we're running out of time is your your words about hunger and embodiment. So this is really interesting because as we grow up, we, we learn how to be a body. You know, we the plan of salvation talks about one of the main purposes of earth life is to receive this body. So we're here embodied. That's a really big part of life. And so you focus on that through the idea of hunger. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it's the most obvious part of being a body is that bodies are hungry. Right? They're hungry, number one, obviously for food, but they're also hungry for sensation uh, you know, all through all five of our senses. Uh, and in the end, uh, bodies are almost universally hungry for other bodies. We, we hunger at a primal level for human intimacy with other people, um, both spiritually, but uh, especially physically. There's a kind of hunger. And those hungers, right, those hungers shape what it means to be a human being. They shape what we do throughout the course of a day. Our whole day is structured around uh, the meals that we eat and when we eat them and who we eat them with and uh, sleeping at night and uh, stimulating our senses and connecting uh, physically with the people around us. That's what it means to be a body is to be hungry and learning how to be a human being in the way that God wants us to be a human being, I think boils down to learning how to live with and care for those hungers without either trying to satisfy them unduly or purge them from us. You kind of talk about how these, you know, the hunger, the body, being embodied sort of returns us to the present moment, right? Yeah. Um, it, it makes us attend to the now, Um as, as people, we often look back to something that happened before or we look ahead to the future, and I think our embodiment sort of calls us to the present moment, and at least that's, that's what I think you're trying to communicate. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. The only place where it's possible to be alive and to love someone is in the present moment. That's almost too obvious to, to probably spend a lot of time talking about but that may be one reason actually to say it is because it's so obvious the only way the only way you can connect with the past or the future is through stories right we can tell stories about what happened in the past and we can tell stories about what we want to happen in the future but in the end if we want to connect with life life only exists in one place and that's the present moment Uh, and if we attend to the messy difficulty uncomfortable resistant character of the hungers that we experience in our bodies uh, that will tend to bring us back from the fantasy land of our stories and ground those stories in a meaningful way in the real world at our feet before we go i want to ask just maybe a little bit about the the composition of this book so you you've written several books now um you have a collection of essays rube goldberg machines that's really interesting but it's a very different book um, you have a book, Speculative Grace, that's more of a philosophical, theological book. How did the actual process of writing this book, Letters, differ from the other books that you've written? Well, Letters to a Young Mormon is my my fifth book, but the other four are all professional in character, right? They're the work of a professional philosopher speaking to other professional philosophers and academics. Uh, but this book much more personal, much more anecdotal. Uh, there's no footnotes. <laughs> that, has, <laughs> that has a different kind of style meant, is right, meant for a very different kind of audience. Uh, this book wears its heart on its sleeve, I think. Was it difficult to find that voice? Because most of the writing you've done uh, that's been published has, hasn't been in that voice. 
in some ways it was more like it was a relief to have an occasion to write mm-hmm. in this voice that's more my own than a professional voice. So in some ways it came easier, maybe than uh, the hard work of dressing things up in academic prose. But there's a there's a kind of value to the academic voice, uh, but there are certain kind of work that it's not good for. Has your daughter seen any of the letters? Has she read it yet? She read them. She read them in the manuscript form. I think she she's probably reread parts since. Uh, Did she give you any constructive feedback in terms of maybe saying? You know, I don't get this part or anything like that. She hasn't really. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just kind of, I let the, I've just let the book just be what it is. And she can, she can find in there uh, what she'd like and whatever is useful in there she can use. And what's not, she can, she can leave it lay where it is. What sort of age group did you have in mind? Because she was... 12-ish around the time you were writing it, right? Is that, I mean, that's that's pretty young uh, in terms of in terms of how the book is written. Uh, did you have any age range in mind, or did you just kind of, you know? Well, the book is very frank, I think. Yeah. Uh, which may be one way in which it's uh, it's different from other kinds of books written for Mormon youth. The book is written, I think, the book, though it's written for youth, it speaks to them as adults, right? It treats them as adults in the way that it talks about things. It doesn't treat them as kids, it treats them as adults. And when I wrote the book, I wanted to include all the things that I wanted my children to know, that they that I thought that they would need to know at some point, and some of those things they may need to know right now, and maybe some of those things they won't need to know until later. Uh, but yeah. I wanted to I wanted to put in there all the things that I that I that I thought that they might need to know from me, and then I was going to let them sort out which ones they needed to know right now, which ones maybe are just for later. I've had several people ask me, um, well, you know, is this book? appropriate for my 12-year-old? Or is this book appropriate for my 15-year-old? And and I think my response has basically been, well, um, you know, you know your 12-year-old, you know your 15-year-old. Why not Why not read the book? Um, and you can even read it with them, uh, or you can read it before they read it. Uh, and I think parents probably have the best grasp on how the book might, uh, might work for their kids. I think it would be valuable anyway for parents to sit down and read it um, with their kids. At, um, well, I gave I gave copies of the book to all of my children at Christmas time. My seven year old and my nine year old and my thirteen year old. I think they were they appreciated the gesture, just as a gesture, in that they you know they they see me spending a lot of time writing and yeah I think they they were excited about the fact that this was something that I had written for them. And my nine-year-old, my nine-year-old told me he's nine, my nine-year-old boy told me the other day that he was reading the first couple chapters, the first couple letters, and that he liked them. <laughs> I don't know wow. what that I don't know what that means exactly, right? I mean, but I think the letters at the level at the level of the sentence, at the level of the paragraph, even they're not hard to follow. No, right? A nine-year-old, a nine-year-old could read it and follow it and find things that are useful in it without. Uh, even if some parts of it uh, go over or under his head. I, I think I so. I think that's true. I think that's fine. I mean, there are probably parts of the book that go under or over my own head. That's <laughs> probably fine. It's probably fine, too. But I think you sort of intended it that way, right? Like, you didn't... That's one of the most interesting things about the book is it's it feels open-ended. It, it, feels, it feels intimate, like you're talking to somebody in a personal conversation, but it's not... It doesn't come across as dogmatic or like sort of speaking from this higher place of authority or anything. It's, it's just these almost meditations or these almost, it's almost like advice or just like you know you're you're putting advice out there for people to, to try out in their lives or advice on how to view particular gospel principles and then, uh, sort of leaving it in the reader's hands at that point. Yeah, I think the book, more than anything, is an invitation to care more, to pay attention more, to think more, to love more, 
And that invitation's open-ended, and I don't mean the book to be the final word, but maybe just the first one. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about the book. I appreciate your taking the time. Yeah, that's Adam Miller. He's the author of Letters to a Young Mormon, a new book published by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. Questions or comments about this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast can be sent to blairhodges at byu.edu, or you can leave a comment on the Institute's Facebook page. You can also help us spread the word about the Maxwell Institute podcast by rating it or leaving a review in iTunes.